The prophet Habakkuk begins his Old Testament prophecy with these words. How long, O Lord, will I cry out to you in prayer and you refuse to listen? How long, O Lord, will I cry out violence yet you refuse to save? What Habakkuk is talking about is what today we would refer to as the abuse of power. In Habakkuk's day in the community in which he lived, those who had power were using that power not for the good of others, but for their own good. And Habakkuk cries out, violence, Lord. There is power being abused. When are you going to do something about it? And what was true in Habakkuk's day is just as true, if not more so, today. You can't pick up a newspaper or read a blog or pay attention to the news and not see horrendous abuses of power in the world around us. This past week or the week before, I think it was, Harvey Weinstein turned himself into authorities because of abuses of power, sexual assaults on women. Michigan State University had happened there one of the worst known examples of abuses of power in the sexual assaults that happened there. They've recently settled for $500 million payout because the abuses of power were not limited to just one person, but to others who were engaged in the university. I recently read a horrifying and sickening article about Silicon Valley and the abuses of power going on there, again related to sex. Those titans of industry who are designing the technology that we love so much, to see an insider's view of what some of them are doing with the power that's been entrusted to them, it'll make your stomach turn. Lisa and I recently watched the movie The Post, which was a reminder of the abuses of power from government, both Republicans and Democrats, related to the Vietnam War. And like all good movies, it not only made you think of the past, it used the past to cause you to think of the present and the kind of bullying and lying and manipulation and backroom wranglings that is currently taking place in government today all abuses of power. Ironically, watching the movie, I was also reminded about how the media abuses power. Rushing to judgment, telling stories from a particular point of view. We have stories as well of police brutality. Those abusing power against some who are defenseless. School shootings, which seem to be happening more and more frequently, also abuses of power. There are abuses of power on college campuses where those who may hold minority opinions are not allowed to share freely what they think. They're being shouted down by protesters and refuse to allow uh, anyone to hear their point of view. Also, abuses of power. It's not limited to the secular world, unfortunately. 
Recently in the news, there have been multiple high-profile church authorities who have also resigned from their pastor positions or their positions of leadership in seminaries because of abuses of power. If I were going to define for you what the Bible says abuse of power is, the definition would probably look something like this. To abuse power is to use whatever you have to bring about the end you desire by force, usually to the harm of others. To use whatever you have to bring about the end that you desire by force, usually to the harm of others. Because if we're honest, the abuses of power, if we understand them the way the Bible talks about them, they are not simply limited to those who are in government or titans of industry or those who have positions of authority. Abuses of power are everywhere. In your lives, in mine. Look with me at a couple of passages that show some other areas where there may be abuses of power that we might not have thought of. The book of 3 John talks about a man named Diotrephes. The apostle John writes about Diotrephes and he says he loves to be first and so he will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who wants to do so and puts them out of the church. You might not think of spreading malicious nonsense as an abuse of power, but it is. It's not the use of physical force, but it is the use of force to try to bring about what you want to have happen. And Diotrephes wants to be first. And in order to be first, he feels like he's got to tear everybody else down. That's an abuse of power. He's refusing to allow certain people into the church because they challenge or jeopardize his position. Or consider this passage in Judges chapter 14. The context of this story is Samson has taken a wife and he's at the wedding feast and he's made a bet with the Philistines. His wife is Philistine. And he's made a bet with the Philistines. And what we're told is is on the fourth day of the wedding feast, the Philistines said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. Now this is her wedding week. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't explained it to my mother or father, he replied. Why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of her wedding feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. 
Now there are two abuses of power in this passage. The first one is obvious. When the Philistine rulers come to this woman and say, we're gonna burn you to death and your father and his household, that is a clear abuse of power. They don't want to lose the bet and so they're gonna use force to try to make sure that they win it. But there's a second abuse of power in there. Do you see it? It's what Samson's wife is doing. It's emotional manipulation. It is nagging. She's not in a position of authority, but she does have power. And she's trying to use by emotional force, she's trying to bring about the end that she wants. An abuse of power. So what does God have to say in the face of nearly universal abuses of power, both those out there, and if we're honest, some of us or all of us in here. What is God's response to a world that has gone mad with abusing power? I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 10. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10 It's page 822 in the church Bibles. Mark chapter 10. We are going to look at the response of God. Habakkuk cried out, how long, Lord, are you going to watch the abuse of power happen in this world and among your people? And what, Lord, are you going to do about it? And Mark 10 is God's response to that cry. We're gonna look at a larger section of scripture that runs from verse 32 of Mark 10 to verse 52. This larger section of scripture is broken up into three subsections. Verses 32 to 34, that's the prelude. Verses 35 to 45, that's the main heart of the teaching. And then verses 46 to 52, that's the postlude. So let's dive in to the prelude, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now stop there for a moment. That's a strange introductory sentence. They're on their way to Jerusalem and all of a sudden we're told that the disciples are astonished and everybody following is afraid. Of what? What are they astonished about? What are they afraid of? Well, the key is, Mark tells us that Jesus was leading the way. Now, at first glance, you might think, well, he's kind of in front and everybody's kind of walking behind him. That's not the point. The point is not who's leading the way physically, it's metaphorical. Jesus is leading his disciples and his followers to a particular place. And where is that place? It's Jerusalem. This is the first time in Mark's gospel where we're told that they're headed to Jerusalem. And what's waiting for them in Jerusalem? Death, opposition. Jerusalem is where the religious leaders are who hate Jesus. 
Jerusalem is the headquarters of their power. These are the people who have been plotting to kill Jesus all the way back since Mark chapter three. And now they find out, wait a second Jesus, where are we going? We're going to Jerusalem? That's why they're astonished. That's why everybody's afraid. They're going into the teeth of the lion. They're going into the heart of the beast. We're headed to Jerusalem? Are you crazy? Because that's where they're going, middle of verse 32 again. Jesus takes the 12 aside and tells them what's going to happen to him. He's going to confirm their worst fears. Verse 33, we are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus basically says, everything you think that's gonna go bad, it's going to go bad and worse. And we're headed to Jerusalem on purpose. Well, that's the prelude. The main body of the teaching is in verses 35 to 45. And the setup is, Jesus has just announced he's going to be killed soon. They're on their way to Jerusalem for him to die. James and John, who are two of the disciples, seem to be thinking to themselves, we don't know this for a fact, but seem to be thinking to themselves, huh, if he's gonna die soon, we better get our request in and ask him the thing we've been wanting to ask him. And so they, the sons of Zebedee, come to him, verse 35, teacher, they ask, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You ever had anybody do that to you? You ever, everyone, maybe it's a child. <laughs> maybe it's somebody who's come up to you and says, hey, promise that you'll say yes to what I'm about to ask you. That's actually an abuse of power. It's subtle. But what that person is doing is they're using your love and your faithfulness, that you're the kind of person who does what you say you're gonna do, and they're trying to use it to get you to do what it is that they want you to do. Jesus, of course, does what we would do. Why don't you tell me first what it is that you want, and then I'll decide if I'm going to agree to it. That's verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? They replied, verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left at glory. See, James and John aren't sure that they're going to get these positions on their own, so they're trying to use their power to get Jesus to agree to it now. Perhaps they're playing on the fact, hey, you're gonna be dead in a few days? Why don't you make this assignment now and we'll make it easy on you. You can assign it to us. Do you see the abuse of power? You don't have to be in a position of authority. James and John are trying to use what's at their disposal to bring about the end that they want. Jesus replies, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. <laughs> Jesus said to them, 
You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And then he uses James and John's abuse of power to launch into the heart of the teaching. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with James and John, just the same way you and I would be when we see abuses of power. They're frustrated. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, this is what the world does with power. They abuse it. Those who are in positions of authority, those who have influence, those who have money, those who have any sort of resources, use it to bring about the end that they want. Those examples that I listed for you at the beginning of the sermon, those have been going on for all of human history. And Jesus shows up and says, this is how this sinful world works. If you give people power, they will abuse it. If you give them resources, they will use them for their own ends. Jesus says, I'm here to show you a different way. What is that different way? What is that antidote to the abuse of power? What is God's response to the sexual abuse scandals, the scandals in government, the scandals in academia, the abuses of power, even amongst ourselves in the church? What is God's response? Jesus says, serving. Because if the Bible's definition of the abuse of power is this, to use whatever you have to bring about the end that you desire by force, usually to the harm of others, a definition of what serving is, according to the Bible, to use whatever you have to bring about God's will and blessing for others. What Jesus is not talking about is the abandonment of using anything. We are not talking about the use of power, we're talking about the abuse of power. And Jesus says the antidote to the abuse of power is to take whatever resources you have Whatever you've been given, whatever authority, whatever treasures, whatever talent, whatever influence, whatever you have to take those things and to use them to bring about God's will and to bless others. And then Jesus holds up the ultimate example of an act of service, and it's himself. We've been saying it aloud all year long. Would you say it aloud with me? From verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is the father's response to the abuses of power that are present in human history? It is first and foremost the person of Jesus. So let's think together just for a few minutes about what is going to happen to Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem. This is where he's headed, into the teeth of the lion, where he's going to be brutally murdered and killed. Talk about an abuse of power. The creator of the universe, subjected to human authority. Let's think about just the last few events of his life. Start with me in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus is going to die on a cross, he's there praying to the Father, and a troop of Roman soldiers shows up to arrest him. How did they know where he was? Judas betrayed him. That's an abuse of power. Judas is essentially taking his friendship with Jesus and trading it for 30 pieces of silver. He's using what he has to bring about the end he desires by force to the harm of others. Now we do something similar, not of the same magnitude, but if we take our marriage relationship and we trade that for favorite work or advancement in income, we're doing the same thing. We're abusing the power. This relationship that's been entrusted to us, that's what Judas did. He took the relationship he had with Jesus and he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. When the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and hacks off one of the servant's ears. What is that? An abuse of power. He thinks he's doing Jesus a favor, but in reality, he's trying to use force to bring about the end that he wants. He doesn't want Jesus to go this way. He doesn't want the kingdom to go about this way, and so he tries to stop it by force. We do things like this as well. Our child is not getting enough playing time on the sports team that they're on. So we use whatever means we have necessary to try to cajole or force the coach to play our child more because we are convinced that our child is supposed to turn out to be a professional athlete or a scholarship athlete when that may not be God's plan for this child. The father's plan for Jesus was not for Peter to take his sword and fight his way out of this situation. In fact, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. Do you not realize that I have the power right now to call down legions of angels to come and fight on my behalf? That's the crazy thing. The person with the most power in the garden is not using it. He says, but if I did that, that would be in my own good. I would not help any of you. 
and it would not be in obedience to the Father. And so he says, Peter, put away your sword. And Jesus, who has all power, chooses not to abuse it. We go from the garden to Caiaphas's house. He's the high priest and the leader of the Jewish uh, the leadership who are against Jesus. There Jesus, all by himself, is put on trial. And Caiaphas and the teachers of the law produce false witnesses who testify falsely about Jesus. What is that? Abuse of power. That's what Diotrephes was doing in 3 John. These leaders want to make sure that Jesus is guilty and so they motivate people to share false testimony about Jesus to try to bring about the end that they desire. They slap Jesus. They hit him while he's on trial. We're guilty of these kinds of things as well. When at work, we may try to use our physically intimidating presence to overwhelm a competitor. Or when we're on a sales call, we massage the data so that our product turns out better or looking better than a competitor's. We're using the means available to us to try to bring about the end that we desire. It's an abuse of power. But what does Jesus do? He says nothing. He's on trial. This is the God of the universe who not only has the ability to call down legions of angels from heaven, he's omniscient. He knows they're lying. He can prove that they're lying. He can shoot holes in all the things they're testifying about him and he doesn't do it. Why? Because the goal is not for him to get off in that trial. The goal is not for him to be declared innocent. The goal is for him to obey. And so he doesn't use his power. We go from Caiaphas' house to Pilate. We're going from the Jewish leadership to the Roman leadership. When he shows up before Pilate, the Jewish leaders stir up the crowd to ask Jesus to be crucified. What is that? Abuse of power. The crowd uses the sort of mob violence to say to Pilate, we don't want Barabbas, we want Jesus to be crucified. What is that? Abuse of power. The majority, the majority rules. Pilate turns around and condemns an innocent man. What is that? An abuse of power. He's been entrusted by Rome with executing justice and he knows Jesus is innocent. He knows it. Why does he declare that he's going to be crucified? He's abusing his power. We do these kinds of things. There's somebody at school that we don't like. And so we stir up all our friends to not have anything to do with them. We shun them at the lunchroom. We say things that aren't true about them. What is that? It's an abuse of power. We don't like them. We don't want anyone else to like them. We're trying to bring about the end that we desire by force, usually to the harm of others. But what does Jesus do? He could expose all of this. 
He could expose the miscarriages of justice. He could point out to Pilate, hey, Pilate, I thought you were some kind of leader. I thought you were some kind of ruler. You're just going to let these people talk you into this? He could show them that this is not, how could this possibly be in Rome's best interest to condemn an innocent man? How is that justice? The judge of all the earth is on trial and he is being declared guilty for something he didn't do. But does he do that? All he does is gently respond to Pilate's questions, trying in love to get Pilate to see how desperate his need for God is. And then finally we come to the cross where everything that Jesus said was gonna happen, happens. He's crucified. People spit on him. That's the one maybe we don't think that much about. They're spitting on him. Imagine. Each one of these people that he loves enough to die for is spitting on him. They mock him. They beat him. And while he hangs on that cross, they pass by and say, hey, if you're really God, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. What is that? It's an abuse of power. They're using their mockery. They're using their spittle. They're using their whips. They're using their disdain. All to make fun of him and make themselves feel better. Can Jesus come down from that cross? Does he not have the power to simply come down? Does he do it? Why not? Because the son of man did not come to serve his own interests. He came to serve us who are horrendous abusers of power. And because he chose to come and serve us, he gave his life as a ransom so that we could live. What is God's response to this world's abuse of power, yours and mine and everybody around us? He sent his only son. And his son came and chose at every step of the journey not to use the means available to him to bring about what would be in his own best interest. Instead, he used everything that he had to bring about God's will and blessing for us. We're saved because he served. We are not abandoned to a world that knows nothing except the abuse of power. God did not turn us over to sexual assault, to government abuse of power, to abuse of power in academia. He did not abandon us to our own sinfulness, but chose to serve us and to save us. That's the heart of the message that Jesus is proclaiming. Well, all that remains is the postlude. Mark 10, verses 46 to 52. After this powerful teaching, Jesus does one more thing before he arrives in Jerusalem. He heals a blind man. Now, 
to be honest, it might feel a little anticlimactic. I mean, it's, it's great, it's a, it's a wonderful miracle, but we've seen Jesus do amazing miracles. We've seen him raise people from the dead. This is unbelievable stuff, and this is one's great too. It just feels like, well, one more miracle. But Mark's put it here for a purpose. And the purpose is to remind us, this Jesus that's going to Jerusalem, who's not gonna call down legions of angels from heaven, who's not going to use his omniscience to disprove the false witnesses, who's not going to use his infinite intelligence to disprove the miscarriage of justice in Roman courts, who's not going to use his power to come off that cross, he does have power. He has power at his disposal. And he heals this blind man. But there's more to it than that. And the key verse is verse 52. After this blind man, whose name is Bartimaeus, is healed, Jesus says to him, verse 52, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Wait a second. What did Jesus tell him to do? To go. To leave. You're free to leave. You have been given this gift. You now have your eyesight. The Lord loves you. You are free to go and enjoy and experience the life that your heavenly father wants you to have. And what does the man do? He follows him. Why? Because when you realize that the God of this universe who has the power to heal you is choosing to die for you, when you finally for the first time have your eyes open and realize that while this whole world abuses their power, there is one person with all power who chose not to abuse it but to use it to serve us, you're going to follow him to the ends of the earth. That this man says, look, where is Jesus going? Where's Jesus going? Jerusalem to die. Why would you follow a man to his death? Because if he's willing to serve you in his death, you want to be with him forever. Jesus says the whole world's got it wrong. We think that by using force, by using whatever means are available to us, and trust me, we all have power. You may not have lots of authority, you have intelligence, you may have beauty, you may have financial resources, you may have the ability to throw a temper tantrum and get someone, a parent, to pay attention to you. You have the influence of the committees that you're on, the classroom that you serve in, the workplace that you are, you have intellectual resources, some have the abilities to persuade others, some have the power to manipulate. We all have power at our disposal. We think by using that power, we'll get people to do what we want them to do. And Jesus said, you can try to enslave people, You can try to compel people. You can try to force people. Or you can choose to serve people. And what happens when you choose to serve? They willingly follow. Not all. But this blind man says, I'm going with you, Jesus, wherever you go. 
And the reason why we follow him is not because Jesus was the greatest military strategist, not because he exercised intelligence we had never seen before and invented all sorts of scientific theories we'd never heard of before, not because he was elected in landslide elections. We follow him because he chose to die for us. And at the end of the day, the reason why I believe God chose the gospel of Mark for us to do this year, more than anything else, this verse, verse 45. My concern as a pastor, my concern as a person, you look around, people in positions of power of government, academia, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, New York City, Grand Rapids, Michigan, your home, my home, and all we see are abuses of power. But there is one who is uniquely different than the rest of us, who chose not to use his resources for his own good. And my prayer and my hope and my desire is that in the face of epic abuses of power in this world today, that you and I would fix our eyes on Jesus and that we would see his way is a different way. And to be honest, my concern is that what happens in Washington DC or New York City or San Francisco or LA will begin to influence or continue to influence us here today. The antidote is Jesus. He looks absolutely, radically different than anyone else in the world. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No one else in the world today can say such a thing. No one else in the world today lives in such a way. And if you are sick and tired of how power gets abused, if you're sick and tired of how power gets abused in this country in which we live, if you're sick and tired of how power gets abused in the structures that you're a part of, if you're sick and tired of how power gets abused by you, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the son of man who chose to serve us, wrapped a towel around his waist, got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. That God, who does this? Just one. And he did it because he loves you.